Welcome to the Defending Freedom Podcast. My name is Kenya Alou. I'm a mother, wife, and freedom-loving American. If you believe America is worth fighting for, you've arrived at the right place. I believe America's best years are ahead of us, and that's why this podcast was built for you. Hi, welcome to the Defending Freedom Podcast. I'm excited to be here today with Patrick Berry, who is a supervisory border patrol agent. He's involved with um, officer involved assaults or any use of force. And we're not even here to really talk about that today, but I do want him to share a little bit about his background, how he grew up, what he, uh, where he grew up. Patrick, I want, I want people to kind of get a sense of who you are and why you became the man you are today. Um, just some of the challenges you might've gone through and, you know, how did you get to be in this position of a, you know, higher up level, uh, border patrol agent? Well, first I want to just thank you so much, Ms. Kenya, for having me on. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak and, um, my, my background, I think is, you know, like many people, I didn't grow up privileged. Uh, I'm from Missouri. And so we were, we actually were pretty poor. Um, you know, I was one of those people that I was actually out on my own by the time I was 16 years old. So at 16, I was literally living on the streets. Uh, I still remember borrowing a blanket from a friend and sleeping under people's porches, going to Burger King to catch a school bus to go to school. And then my senior year, I left, I grew up outside the Kansas City area, went to Northern Arkansas. And it was in Fayetteville, it was a university town. And I took the campus buses to go to the high school. And I, I finished high school there, which I was amazed that now looking back that I accomplished that. But nobody works in a in a bubble you know i i had a lot of support and, and i think that's kind of the common theme i've seen throughout my life and so you know as i tell my story i always want to emphasize the the impact that different individuals made and and how important those people are so after high school i moved back to missouri i got very lucky found a good job in radio and i wow. yeah I, I it was insane that i land a job like that out of high school and so it was fun and I met some people, um, very good Christian people who shared a lot with me. I believe it or not, I got involved in the church. And so you didn't the, grow up, a, you didn't grow up a Christian. I, I did. Uh, it's just kind of the cultural background in the Midwest. You know, everybody, everybody believes in God. It's just kind of the thing, whether you go to church on Sunday or not, that's a different story. Uh, you still ended up at 16 on the streets. Exactly. Um, which is wild. And what at that age, why did you keep waking up every day and taking your, take yourself to school? Why did you do that? If you didn't have a parent pushing you to do that? Well, I'm not a very smart person. <laughs> I didn't know any better. <laughs> uh, I, what do you do? I, you know, you, you get up, you go to school. That's what you do. And, and so that's what I kept doing i, I would I didn't argue know. to say that you are a smart person because <laughs> you still got yourself up and you went to school even though you didn't have parents pushing you it was you know i, I and i have to say my father gave me a very good work ethic growing up my, my dad is a workaholic uh when i was young 
you know, I remember being six, seven years old. He would get me up at 6 a.m. on Saturdays to go work at a factory with him. Uh, Then, you know, we had, we lived in a, I grew up in a trailer park, you know, not the, like I said, we, we were pretty poor, but it was a, it was a great experience. Like looking back, uh, this, this trailer park I grew in was generally geared more for elderly people. And so I would go out and I would mow yards. I would rake leaves. And there were all the senior citizens out there that, you know, that there's a young kid doing work for, you know, a couple of dollars. And afterwards they would give you water lemonade and they would tell you stories about world war II, about the Korean war. And so at a young age, I was exposed to this idea of, of, of America and the sacrifices. And, and I got to hear these stories and, you know, this, this one neighbor by the name of Mr. Cruz, who, proud man uh, he was crippled but he refused absolutely refused to use a wheelchair he had two canes and he he was a world war ii vet he dragged himself mm-hmm. around you know and he he showed me the death certificate of his great uncle who had fought in the civil war and had actually survived the war the war had ended and had made it home and was shot and killed on his front porch uh so those are the stories yeah those are the stories i grew up with and and so they'll take you out and they'll they'll have you tear apart a lawnmower engine and they show you how to put it back together and it was it, to me it was a fascinating childhood and and my dad as a kid right your dad wants you to go work and you don't like it but now as an adult i i see the value um and so with you know, my dad always gone and it was a lot of stress with my mom and there's a lot of family tension, you know, uh, it kind of came to a boil in my teenage years. And, you know, I, I listen to some speakers and they talk about, you know, the things that you need to do to be successful in life is, you know, not get addicted to, you know, drugs or alcohol to just stay in school, get an education. And, you know, besides that career, you know, not have children out of wedlock. And the idea is if you do those three things, you're going to be successful in life. Unfortunately for me, I, I, I avoided the drug and alcohol scene. I, I didn't end up with, you know, any children, any babies. And, you know, I just kind of plugged away with the, the education. And, and I think those three things really do contribute to success. So to anybody who's young out there, who's going and struggling through a hard time, you know, just, just remember that and your life should definitely go that path. I I would hope so. It definitely gives you an edge up and, um, helps you to, it it gives you more opportunity and it helps you avoid making poor choices because you're not under the influence of the drugs and alcohol. And, you know, single parenting is hard. I was a single parent for 12 years. It is not, it is not fun. And it definitely, I mean, I have fun memories, of course, being a single parent, Um, but not because I was a single parent, you know, just because I was a mom. Um, but it definitely, my decisions in those years when a lot of people like you, for example, could be focusing on, you know, bettering yourself and getting your education and, you know, ranking up or doing, pursuing whatever goals you have. And all you have to worry about is yourself and how to get there. I was worried about, you know parenting a child, another human. And so right. it, it definitely makes things harder. Um, so what did you, okay. You graduate high school. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I want to, I'd like to add one thing. I don't want to imply that if you have a kid or you've gotten 
you know, you know, you have an addiction that you struggle with. That does not mean you can't be successful. Okay. And that's what that's what's great about this country. That if you put the effort in, you will be successful. The the institutions are in place for anyone to to make it. And and so that's so that's the only reason I don't like saying that because we all have our struggles. We all have things that you know we we have to overcome. And and those should never be a reason for us to not succeed or not try. No, of course. And, you know, back to when I was a single parent, uh, I didn't quit school. I kept going. It was harder for me, um, but I didn't quit. And I, I got my bachelor of science in nursing. I became a registered nurse, um, you know, and then later I became a real estate agent and, you know, now it, it doesn't, it should never prevent someone. Nobody should ever make a mistake with drugs or alcohol or getting pregnant out of wedlock and think that their life is over and they can't do anything. Absolutely not. They can. Absolutely. You just got to overcome the challenges that come with it. That's, that's, that's right. And so, you know, for me, just moving forward, uh, I think, you know, on top of that, I just had people who cared. Uh, I had, there was a, a family that I had met in, in Missouri, uh, Bill of Maryland, you know, and, and, they said, you know, come on out to our church, get involved. And, and I don't want to go down, you know, the path of theology or religion, but, you know, Judeo-Christian beliefs are fundamental to a successful society. You know, we learn about love, you know, and, and, and it's a, it's a love that's never ending, right? It's unconditional. We learn about forgiveness. We learn about giving and caring for the poor. We learn about putting others before self. Those are the real true Judeo-Christian values that are taught and really kind of gets glossed over by Bill Maher and some of these atheist groups, right? Yeah. They, they don't see that, that positive side. And what I believe is very important in, 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 the, in the church is this idea of serving something bigger than yourself. And that is that I grew up with that idea of church, but it was through those years as, uh, you know, 18, 19, up until I was 21, that that idea really became ingrained in me. And so I had gotten married. Uh, I, well, let me back up for just a moment. I, I had met another couple through the church that had lived in Southern Missouri. And um, her name was Sandy and his name was Drexel. But very charismatic people also engaged in the church and you know and so one year i didn't have anywhere to go for christmas and they had invited me so i'm there for christmas and i'm visiting in branson missouri i don't know if you've ever heard of branson yeah i've been yeah there. yeah it's a great place and you know and i was just just chatting and saying you know i would love to be a history teacher i i love history i love reading about history and sandy was like well why don't you just go to college and I said, I, I can't. I said, I'm poor. I don't have the money. I never got a scholarship. And she's like, well, that's silly. She goes, there's a college right here. You can just go. And they they have a program. And so she told me about College of the Ozarks. And, that's amazing. Oh, and so the school is a phenomenal school. So and, and she had helped me enroll and get accepted at the school. And basically, the way College of the Ozarks works is you you work 15 hours a week during the classes and you owe the school a 40 hour a week on one of the breaks. And that work you do at the school pays your tuition. Oh, 
Now, it's not just a school where, you know, you kind of go goof off. Your work is actually graded and it's it's part of your GPA. And if you fall behind on your hours, if your work is not acceptable, they'll put you on probation and they'll kick you out of school if if you don't, you know, meet your obligation. What kind but of degrees do they, what kind of degrees, degrees do they it's, offer there? It's, it's just a regular school. It's a regular university. So I got my, I, I double majored education in history. You know, they have, oh uh, they have agriculture, music, they have everything. And the campus is, so my first year I worked in the construction department. And so literally the campus buildings are built by students. They have a, they, they have a small staff of permanent uh, uh, employees, but, you know, we're out there and we're building these, these buildings, these classrooms, the chapel was built by students. They have a fire department on the campus that's managed by students. They have a cafeteria, landscape crew. Uh, they have all these different centers, a post office. All of this is, is basically worked by the students. And so what happens is people will donate because they like a lot of people like the school and what it stands for and so they'll donate money to the school the school doesn't just spend that money they invest it they take that money for that's invested and use that interest to operate the school and give opportunity for students to come and not have to pay tuition and graduate debt free and so there it's very uh geared towards you know your spiritual life so you have to attend a chapel you have to do your convocations you know it's geared towards obviously cultural patriotic uh vocational and then of course you know your your education is and so those are the the five benchmarks of the school that's amazing what a concept to I mean, nobody does that these days. People are paying on these student loans. And like, what if every university adopted this model? Why would you not do something like this? It's, right. it's And so it's it, it was just an amazing experience. Uh, and then, you know, you're you're the student, you're young, you went from just a few years prior, you're you're living in the streets, right? To now you're working at school and here comes Barbara Bush to speak at your school because they believe in the mission, right? They believe in what's going on. And it was just a surreal experience. Uh, I later on I got to work in the writing lab. Uh, and basically, you know, students who needed help with writing and computers, that was kind of my job. And so that took me up to 2001. Uh, in 2001, I graduated. I had my, you know, teaching degree, history degree uh, in Missouri, in that part of the world, it is kind of poor. So it's hard to find those good jobs. So I was still working construction uh, that I had was working this job uh, while I was going to school and also a hotel. I had a couple of jobs, but, you know, I, when you work and you get that degree and you earned it, right? Nobody gave it to you. You there's a lot of pride in that, but there's more important. And I think something that's kind of missing is there's that sense of accomplishment. When when you have to make a sacrifice to get something in this world, it means a lot more to you than if it was just given to you. And so you learn a lot about yourself. You learn about how to set goals. And so I was actually starting to build my own business, uh, doing rock laying, and then uh, 9-11 happened. And so I'm sure you remember that day. And I it's, do. It's, it's a day that just, you know, it, it changed everything. It, and it changed my mindset that my world was not that little corner in Missouri anymore. 
And so uh, I had gone out and started meeting with military recruiters. I, I just had my degree. There was no reason why I shouldn't go serve my country. And the problem was less than a year prior, I had been in a, a bad truck accident that had messed up my knee. So I had hardware that they had put in my knee to kind of help fix it. And so I was going, you know, to these different recruiters. The answer was pretty much no. Uh, the military couldn't take me. And I remember this one recruiter was talking to me. And he's like, son, he goes, who all have you talked to? Who have you applied with? And I gave him the list and I mentioned the Border Patrol. He's like, no one is going to take you um, while you have that hardware in there. So you need to do something about that. And I, I said, okay. And I, and I still had my application pending with the Border Patrol. I hadn't gone in yet for any medical examination. So uh, the only insurance I had was what was offered to the college. And it was only good for one year. It only paid a certain amount. So I called them. I called the orthopedic surgeon who had done the operation. And I said, look, I need to get this taken out of my knee. If I have any shot with the Border Patrol, I, I need to, to have this removed. So there was enough money left on that insurance because it only paid a certain amount for a year to, to do the operation. It didn't have enough to pay for the anesthesiologist. So here I go into the oh hospital. God. I had to sign a waiver uh, that I was wow. willing to undergo the surgery without anesthesia. I mean, they did they think you were crazy? Like, what did they say? The doctor understood. I mean, he understood my predicament. And so I met with that anesthesiologist and he, I had to sign a release form. And he told me, he goes, I'm going to be at the hospital if you change your mind, like halfway through this. I'm like, that's good to know. I'm not yeah. joking. They literally strap you to the, to the bed. It, they have straps. They strap you down. I'm not joking. Oh my gosh. Did you scream? No, I didn't scream. Believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> I it, the, the, the male logical brain took over in the middle of the operation as they're cutting my knee and he comes out with hand tools. And I'm thinking, do you not have power tools to do this so we can get it over faster? I could not believe they're using hand tools. That was where my mind was at. Oh my uh, gosh. It, it, it hurt. I'm not going to lie, but we got it all taken out and I recovered pretty quickly and passed all my medical examinations for the border patrol and Okay. How long was it from when you had the surgery? If you remember from when mm -hmm. you had the surgery to your physical interview with the border patrol? I don't remember how long it was. Uh, the surgery was in November of 2001. Um, I had already signed up for the border patrol. I don't know how long it was. I know that I joined the border patrol in 03 though. So in 2003 was when I hmm. reported to El Paso, Texas. Oh, my hometown. Yeah, that's that's what brought me to El Paso. <laughs> and uh, as of this coming June, I'll have 19 years uh, wow. with the agency. And uh, it's funny because, you know, you go through the Border Patrol Academy and you get sprayed. You got a PT. You got to do all these things. And, you know, and, and yeah, it, don't get me wrong. Right. It, it some of that does hurt but it does not hurt as bad as getting knee surgeries. Out of anesthesia. <laughs> you're, so your mind, you're thinking, all right, go, I've got the worst behind me. I, I can do this. Oh I can, gosh. I can persevere. And so, uh, I, how I felt after having my babies with no, uh, epidural. Oh my no, goodness. No pain medication. I'm like, whenever somebody asks me, does this hurt? I'm like, 
no, I'm good. Not as bad as what I've been through in the past. So <laughs> it's, it's amazing how you can build a little bit of a t- pain tolerance. So, but yeah, it's, uh, the only today. difference though is Patrick is after I had my pain, I had like an amazing baby, like as an outcome, you had no amazing baby as an outcome. <laughs> no, no. But my friend took me deer hunting the next day. Oh, so. <laughs> I and I couldn't walk, so he put me on the back of a four wheeler, oh drove God. me out in the middle of nowhere, put me on a five gallon bucket, then he went to the next hill to go hunting. And I was sitting there with my leg, you know, bandaged up, and I'm like, but well, this is insane. And it the was the next day? The next day, yes. <laughs> and lo and behold, here comes a herd of deer, and I ended up dropping a deer sitting on the bucket with my leg all bandaged up. So my buddy came back. This is the grit I'm talking about. Okay. The grit where you grow up in a trailer park. A lot of people use that as an excuse why they don't ever make anything of their life because of where they grew up or how they grew up. You figured out a way to go to college without incurring debt. You figured out a way how to get into the border patrol by going through a surgery. Like most people are not willing to do those things. (laughs) Especially the surgery. Well, you, you got to think about, though, as a child growing up, talking to World War II vets, mm. these Korean vets, these these people who fought and suffered through the Great Depression. Uh, grit and determination and perseverance is the backbone of the American spirit. And, and it's so important with the people that you were able to talk with. And, you know, most of us were, were, did not have that those conversations growing up, you know, we didn't, and, and it's worse and worse as we get farther and farther away from it with history, where they're changing what's being taught in schools from that to things that really don't, don't matter and are are harmful. Right. It's it, it, and you know, to people that are listening to your podcast, I would just encourage those who are vets um, meet with the neighborhood kids, sit down, talk Mm -hmm. to them, take them out for ice cream, Uh, tell them, tell them your story story because as a child you know you, you you think kids want to go out and play and stuff but we're we're people and people love stories and that's mm-hmm. that's that's part of who we are as a human that's why movies and theater are have such an impact on our daily lives and so as a child growing up you know not only do you get to hear this amazing story but you're hearing it from the person who lived it and and i believe that children want to hear those stories so, yeah. And even if they, even if they don't fully comprehend it or aren't listening to all of it or whatever, they're still going to get something from it. Yes. You know, just by hearing it. And I mean, I wish when my grandparents, I mean, and they weren't, they weren't veterans, but, um, they just had so much knowledge. And my grandmother grew up through the great depression and, she was like shipped from home to home. Her parents, you know, uh, weren't around. Um, and the stories that they have, the elderly community that they've experienced that they could share, uh, we sit there and, you know, maybe they're hard of hearing or whatever. And so we just don't talk instead. We need to press in and talk a little louder and ask them questions and let them respond because they have so much to offer, um, the younger generation and my generation, and you, you know, just so much gold there that we can learn from. I, I agree. And, you know, 
if I was to make a list, you know, of, of people in my life who've influenced me, you know, I look at, you know, Mr. Cruz, you know, I look at Mr. Nelson, these, these people from my childhood who told me these stories and told me what it was to be an honorable person. You know, as I got older, I look at, you know, people like Marilyn and Bill who, in Lamar got me involved in the church. I look at Sandy and Drexel who helped me go to school, helped me get involved with the church and connected there. Uh, I look at people like Ron Vitello, you know, our, our former chief of, of the Border Patrol and deputy commissioner of CBP and his wife, Nuri. And so, you know, Great they people. they are just phenomenal people and 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 I look at the impact and I, and that's one thing I want to talk about a little bit about Chief Fatello you know I I've, I've had a good career with the Border Patrol and and I my career progression I went through training and uh, in 2015 I was brought out to the DC area for the Advanced Training Center and and I worked on different projects over here the nine millimeter assessment worked over in our national firearms training branch. And when uh, Ronald Vitello, who is the chief, needed an adjutant, I was recommended to him. He interviewed me, he picked me up, and normally he he has an adjutant for, for six months. So I don't I don't want to interrupt, but I want to interrupt just so that people sure. understand. Uh, when I was talking with Nuri, she mentioned adjutant, and I'm like, what's that? So okay. explain to our listeners what that is exactly. So when you have a person like Chief Fatello that's in, in that position, right, there's a lot of day-to-day stuff that they just cannot manage. And so they it's it's modeled after the military. So they bring a uniformed personnel in who manages the day-to-day. So I would coordinate his meetings, his phone calls. I would coordinate his transportation, if uh, manage his security. And so those, so he could focus on the job that he needed to do, which was run the organization. And so it's an opportunity for people that were at my level to kind of get that 30,000 foot view. But also, you know, what I like about Chief Fatello, and I think what makes him exceptional was he was very keen about talking to people like me to know what was going on within the organization. And so he liked to kind of get those people in every six months. And, and he was so low maintenance, like totally no, low maintenance. <laughs> it was, you know, everybody's like, wow, you were the chief's adjutant. How hard was that? I was like, well, wasn't that hard? Because <laughs> he, he is probably, and I'm not saying this because he's my friend, but he's literally probably the, the most intelligent human being I've, I've ever personally met. Uh, very sharp, very quick, very articulate. So for our meetings, you know, I didn't have to prepare briefing notes for him. He, he knew the material. He knew it better than the people that would prepare the, the briefing materials. So uh, it was just, it was an amazing experience. We, we got to do all kinds of just amazing things, things that I, you know, to be in the same room with the president of the United States. You know, Donald Trump was there speaking to all of us. Yes, it was. Well, and, and not just once, you know, multiple times. Uh, I got to meet, you know, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, to, to, you know, you had to stop and think, wow, this is a kid that just how many years ago was in Missouri in a trailer mm-hmm. park. And, and here I am with, you know, the most powerful man. Yeah, it, it just it's mind blowing. And and this is this is the cool part, right? With 
you know, we're in the Senate, we're over, you know, meeting with congressional delegations, the media, he's on Fox News, he's on CNN. And out of all of this, right, you know, I'm learning, I'm learning from this man's example, and he's with these people. I cannot overemphasize his commitment to the families of Border Patrol agents, that he was at this high level, but his focus, Nuri's focus was always to the family. And so, you know, when we had the the Fallen Agents Memorial Week, and, and, and I remember we were at the Capitol, him and Miss Nuri were out among the widows and the children who lost uh, their, their dad, who lost an agent in the line of duty. They're not with the VIPs. They're not out getting the soundbite. Like I, re- I remember Miss Nuri, she had this green jacket on and, and they're just involved with these families and, and just being with them. And, and they made it their mission to, to love the families. And, and, you know, you have the BPA network, which does so much, so much uh, for the families. And, and even after Chief Atolo went to ICE and then he retired, they're still very active. And, and that, that idea of leadership, not serving themselves, but serving a higher purpose resonated with me. And I could see how authentic his leadership and his commitment to, to the families are and, and the relationships that he built. And so, you know, if I ever get in a leadership position, my goal is to model that uh, because I think that that authentic leadership that really cares about the people, not about your title, not about your rank, not who you're seeing or where you're at. That's what we need more of in this country. And every time we turn on the TV, it's all about ego. I mean, you know that as well as I do. Terrible. So it was refreshing to see yeah. to see that level of compassion and, and, and love and commitment. Yeah, we got I got to talk to Mary about that and and Ron mentioned it also. Um I mean it's just amazing what they're doing. And I love how they, well, how, um, chief Fatello, how he never, um, he never like just, I don't know how to say it. He cared about Nuri and, and what she through his whole career, he knew he was moving her from place to place. And he always made it like, this is our career. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really beautiful and special because I don't know that that always happens. Um, and the, you know, the wives, a lot of times it's wives, but sometimes it's husbands. Most of the time it's, you know, the, I, I talk to a lot of military wives as well. And it's like, you know, they can't focus on their career because they're moving every two years or four years or whatever it is. And it's just what they're expected to do. And, and like, there's not a lot of, team playing going on and it seemed to me that they ron and nuri very much team play oh they're, they're gonna hate me if they listen to this podcast but i'm gonna kind of spill the proverbial beans a little bit uh <laughs> as, as his adjutant i was honestly with him more than his wife was right i was always with him we were always and so when you're with someone that much you see their personal life you see their inner workings with their family and i'm gonna tell you i think now they've been married 35, 36 years now, mm-hmm. you will not find a person more committed to his family than, than Chief Otello. And it's a beautiful love story. And, and I've been in cities and, and this, he's a man of rank and position. 
And I'm telling you, that is a man that loves his wife, loves his family. And, you know, to watch him in his day to day, you know, and he's this kind of hard person, you know, he has that border patrol face on, right? <laughs> but he's yeah. also the guy that leaves the I little love you notes on the mirror for his wife before he goes to work I, it, after all these years, you know, and so yeah, it's, 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 it's a great love story it really is, you know, and it's, it's, it's an honor to be their friends and, and to you know, witness it and just enjoy the joy that they have for each other. Mm-hmm. So I told her they could be, um, they could be, have a great marriage council ministry for specifically, you know, the services, mm-hmm. any kind of military or, you know, where, especially where spouses are separated for long periods of time and, and how all that goes, but, oh, it's just such a joy to, to talk with her. Um, so what about this? What so you brought Trump up. So let's talk right. about uh, let's talk about 2020. OK, 2020. You're, you're going to hate me for this. I, I'm, I did not vote for Donald Trump in 2020. I you know didn't? everybody is shocked to hear this. But let me explain why. Let me explain why, if I can. Uh, I am not a hardline person on terms of vote. Now, I did not vote for Hillary. I'll say that. But okay, I, you redeem yourself. No, no, no. I'm, no. Talking about 2020. I'm not talking about 2016. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm thinking 2016. No, 2020. Okay. I, 2020, I did vote for him. No, I'm okay, sorry. Okay, you are yes. redeemed now because I was like, oh sorry, my sorry. gosh. Okay, so in 2016, this is a story for a lot of people. They did not vote for Trump. No. And so when I look at a candidate, I want to know their policies. And I'm going to be honest with you. Trump did not have any previous policies because he was a businessman. He wasn't mm-hmm. in politics. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to tell you what you want to hear when they're running for office. So I just, you know, and I, it, he's got that New York personality, right? It, everything is either the worst in the world or it's the <laughs> best in the world, right? He doesn't operate in the middle. He's, he's right. very extreme. It's just the way he talks, right? He's that, he's that business guy. And I just like, I just don't know about this guy. I couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary. I'm just, there's just no way I could have done that. But, but I just, I, I couldn't, I, I voted, I, I did vote in the election, but I, I didn't vote for, for Trump. And then so did you just leave the president part. Blank? I did. I okay. left it and blank. Back in 2016. You left that was the president in 20- part blank. Okay. Yes. And so over the course of the next four years, right. Uh, I got to see Donald Trump in action. I got to see his policies. I got to see the man try to work significant issues like the migration crisis on the southern border and and i don't it's pretty complicated on how this all came about but the question that a lot of people ask is why didn't we have this crisis before what changed to where this and it really began the last year of barack obama's uh, presidency and it began in rgv and so what really the you know the, the 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 biggest problem was with you know, TVPRA, which was basically a protection for people who are being trafficked. And then the Ninth Circuit got involved. And the Ninth Circuit is, in my opinion, what really messed this whole thing up, right? Because we had the... Okay, TGPRA. TVPRA, mm-hmm. Pretend my audience has no Border Patrol knowledge. Sure. So it was basically a law that was passed to protect... Uh, Kid. People who kids, families who have been trafficked, and it was just a protection. It was passed. And that's up. where the cage, the cages, what they call cages, came from, or no? 
Well, we have to. So we have things we have to do. We have to separate the children from adults that are Absolutely. not family and, and we have to manage them. And there's other things that are just that kind of kick in. And so it the, the, the spirit of the law was actually good, right? Mm-hmm. It was just some of the logistics and unintended consequences that put that burden on the government, which made it hard. And even still with unattended, unaccompanied minors, right? We, we were still managing them just fine. Mm-hmm. What happened was, was the problem came when the Ninth Circuit stepped in. And the Ninth Circuit said, you have to treat all children as if they're unaccompanied. And so that's where this really kind of went south because now it's like you, people are like, well, I can make it in illegally because I'll just have a kid with me and they, they can't, you know, they can't send me back. So we have to offer these protections for treating that child as unaccompanied. And so what had happened is in, in South Texas, we were just getting this huge migrant surge Uh, there. I don't know if you remember towards the end of 14, 2015, mm-hmm. and we actually put them over at the border patrol Academy until then the, the courts stepped in and said, we couldn't do that. And so when, when Donald Trump got elected in 2016, we had the crisis. We didn't, we had never encountered this type of situation where people are like, well, I have kids, you can't send me away. And, and Mexico is not a problem, right? Mexico is just right there. The problem is, is when they were, was these people were all coming from Central America. And that, that was the problem because you just can't send them, you know, can't give them to the consulate of their country. We had to basically, uh, provide a way to hold them in because we don't have those facilities. We had to release them. So it was just basically people just getting released. Um, Mm. And so what as the word and and this is what people don't realize when a politician says something publicly, when when these practices start getting implemented, the word goes south. And and, in these organizations, these people make millions of dollars off of traffic, these transnational criminal organizations. And to them, people are a commodity that's, it, there's no oh, humanity in it. It's so sad. And so they, and I'm going to be honest with you, they know the rules and laws better than we do. And so mm-hmm. they were basically, they were just trying to, you know, figure out ways that they could work these, these uh, people from El Salvador, from Honduras, from Guatemala. Mm-mm. And I, I actually had an opportunity to go to El Paso to Clint. And I think, you know, that facility yeah. that was in the news, I, I got a chance to tour that uh, before they actually started sending people there. And they had this holding facility close by. And I remember going in there and we were talking, we were talking to this one lady. We we're like, what's going on? What's why, why did you come here? And, and what she had told me, she's like, I didn't want to come. She goes, I, I had a house in, uh, where was she from? Uh, I think she was from Guatemala, if I remember, but she's like, I had a house. She goes, but it, it and she, it, she talks, she said the street gangs, right. But that's all part of the cartel. She's like, the street gangs came and they gave me $20,000 and said, you're going to go to America. You're going to work and pay this back. And, and you have, you know, this amount of time. And, and she's like, it, it wasn't a, a request. I was told to do this. And they said, we're going to hold your house and we're going to keep your uncle here until you pay this money all oh back. Plus gosh. they, they have to pay, they have to pay more than the 20, of course. Right. Cause that's how these cartels make their money, mm-hmm. but it's being driven by these transnational criminal organizations. There's a lot of people coming who don't want to come or they're being forced to come or they're caught up. And so as this, problem 
just evolved. Trump had negotiated, you know, MPP, and it was an agreement with Mexico to make people wait because the idea is they want to ask for asylum. And so if we make them wait in Mexico, then that would dry up because the message of it's a free pass in the United States goes away. And it did. And it worked. And, And it really proved what our hypothesis was was, hey, it's just us releasing people. That it's it's the incentive, mm-hmm. and and I could tell you that Chief Atello, Chief Provost, the Commissioner, the Secretary, they I don't know how many times they were before the Senate, they were before different House committees, saying you got to change the law, you got to fix the law. This is a humanitarian crisis. We can fix it if you fix the law, and. The part that makes me upset, and I'm going to get on my soapbox for a moment, Mm -hmm. but we see different members of Congress. We see different personalities who rather go do a photo op in front of these, you know, uh, holding facilities Mm -hmm. than to actually do their job in Congress and just fix the law. Right. You know, that's all they that's all they have to do. And and we we the, the last year. You know, the Democrats have been in control of both houses and the White House. There's no reason why they couldn't have passed an immigration law to solve this crisis on the southern border. And with the EO that lifted, um, you know, with that EO that that basically, you know, said, hey, you know, we're going to let you cross. And then it's it's just been it's just been a nightmare. We, we've hit numbers that we've never seen before. Um, and so, you know. I'll leave that. I, I from there, I just can't really say a whole much more. Right. We'll let we'll let the uh, we'll let the we'll let smarter people work out ways to solve this crisis and you know what can be fixed. Uh, but it's just it's the point is it's very unfortunate because at the bottom the bottom line is there are people that are that are commodities to these criminal organizations, and it, it's sad. And and there's children involved. And the, the just the amount of people that are being just displaced is it, it it's it's probably one of the greatest crises that we're going to see in America in our lifetime, and it's just I don't think people understand the gravity of the situation, and and our agents have just man they they they've done you know these men and women who are out there working the field because I'm I'm here in D.C. right but I I make trips to the border almost every month. And the level of commitment and dedication that our people are putting forth and, and our leadership in the sectors, they're being challenged with this. And it's just, you know, you, you, you see the stress, you see the pressure, but you also just see the level of commitment. Uh, and, and I know it sounds like I'm bragging about my organization, but I'm very proud of what the Border Patrol is doing. And that's just kind of the culture of, you know, we, we, we do more with less. And um it how are they? How are they doing? Like, um, one of the things that uh, Chief Fatello kind of shared um, was, you know, some of the challenges that the actual boots on the ground, the agents are dealing with, is they're not able to do their duty of protect the border because they're burdened with this duty of processing people. Right. I know that the chief and the secretary have uh, laid out plans for trying to alleviate that burden. Um, you know, they've, they've come up with some new positions and they're taking actions that will hopefully relieve that stress and, and get our people back out there where they belong, ensuring that we have that, that 
national security and sovereignty along the border. Um, but if the laws don't change, if the laws don't change, then it doesn't really matter because the board, I mean, the, the people will continue to come. That is pretty much the message that a lot of our leadership have spoken to Congress over the last couple of years. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that no action has, you know, been taken at this point to try to alleviate the problem, right? Uh, we're, we're, we're at a position right now to fix that, right? When you own both houses of Congress, when you have the White House, you can enact legislation. You can, you can fix this problem. You have the power. Mm-hmm. And, but the and Democrats the, don't want to fix this problem. Well, and that's the that's the question, right? That that needs to be asked, right? You know, who wants this problem fixed? Why don't they want it fixed? Um, you know, and so yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's I'm like, it's a, come on, let's talk. <laughs> okay, so 2020, okay, 2016, you didn't vote for Trump. 2020, I voted for you Donald voted Trump. for Trump. Yes, if you saw his policy. So I believe that there were a lot of people like you out there. For example, Glenn Beck was one of them who did not vote for Trump in 2016, was disgusted by the fact that he was even running. And then in 2020, he was like all in for Trump because he saw the results. And I believe that there are many Americans in our country who had that same trend where they didn't vote for him in 2016, but he won. And then they did vote for him in 2020. Yet we have Biden sitting in the White House. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, we, we, we have Joe Biden. I know that there's been a lot of, you know, controversy. I, me personally, I never addressed the voting or the election. I, I just don't, and this is my opinion, my opinion only. Yeah, you're allowed to give your yeah, opinion. I want to hear it. I, I just I just don't think it's a hill worth dying on. Uh, I I think our current leaders that are at, in the state level need to ensure every state should ensure that there is integrity in the elections and that elections are being conducted fairly and equitably. And and that that should apply to every state. It should. And 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 and, and I think having um you know being transparent with the way that voting is tallied is important. Uh, this is a democratic nation. We need to have, we need, we need to have confidence in our system. As a uh, Republic. I mean, we do. Absolutely. And so with and that being, there's the, well, you know, and, and people will say that's political. I, I make the argument when you have 40% of your population, not having confidence in the electoral system, there's a problem. Right. And, and, and whether whether the system, whether that election was fairly conducted and counted or not, you need to address that problem. Mm-hmm. And that and that responsibility falls squarely on current leadership, mm-hmm. whether we're talking nationally or in the state level. We need to fix that problem. And okay. am I going to vote in the midterms? You bet I will. And I know a lot of people will. And I'm counting on my state to count my vote and I, I hope it makes a difference. And I feel the same way. I'm so, I, I'm very upset with what happened. I I do not think that he is the legitimate president that was elected. Um, but am I not going to vote? No, I'm definitely going to vote because I think it's important. Um, we still have to 
be responsible and mm-hmm. we have the right to vote. And so we should do that. Um, I, I don't have confidence in our elections. I think there's a lot of ballot harvesting. I think there are a lot of dead people voting. I think there, I mean, we saw votes flip on the computer screen. So there are, there's enough out there for me to go, you know what, we can't trust our elections, but as a citizen of the United States, I'm still going to do my part, even if they're going to do something that's wrong. I just think it's the right thing to do. I, I would argue this, and, and the reason that I've never taken up the mantle of talking about like election fraud, and especially 2020, is the last thing I would want is somebody who's going to vote not vote because they're like, well, what does it matter? You know, I I I, I don't want somebody to say, you know, I'm going to say this: go vote, everybody, go out and vote. If if someone, Republican or Democrat, if somebody's going to cheat in the election, make them have to cheat big. Because if, they, because if they have to cheat big, there's a better chance of catching it and identifying it and fixing it. Mm-hmm. And so with that being said, there needs to be a huge turnout at this midterm election. I think this midterm is important. I don't believe that Joe Biden was given a mandate by the people, but he has led this country like he has a mandate. I and think it's pe- been terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and there's a lot of, you know, did I vote for Trump? No. Did I vote for him the second time? Yes. Why? Because his policies worked. Do I think the current policies of this administration work? And I'm saying this as a private citizen. Mm-hmm. I don't see any evidence that his policies have done any benefit. I see a lot of evidence to support that his policies have hurt this country, have hurt the world. And we are on the precipice of a third world war. And I, I don't say that lightly. Uh, I don't think anybody ever foresaw it coming down to the wire. Mm-hmm. But we are, I believe we're literally as close to a third world war as we were back when Ferdinand was assassinated. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole situation with the alliances set off the first world war. We, we've already had the rhetoric. We've have Putin saying that, you know, uh, sanctions against my country are going to be considered an act of war. We've already have, you know, the Secretary of State given the green light to European NATO countries to supply weapons to the Ukraine. And we have basically the common sense to know that if Putin's not going to allow that, he will not allow weapons to be given to Ukraine that are going to be used against him. And, and, and if he attacks, you know, Poland or Hungary, it's all over because the United States it will get involved. There's, there's no doubt about that. We, we're bound to by treaty. And so is that what we want? Do we want a, a third world war? And, and I just don't, I just don't believe it. But people will say, well, it's too late now. And I say, no, but it wasn't too late a year ago. It wasn't too late last summer. We did not, you know, Putin saw how we pulled out of Afghanistan mm-hmm. and, and that was, and, and that was an administrative blunder, right? Mm-hmm. We, sh- we, we gave up an air base that we shouldn't have given up. We, you know, and people say, well, Donald Trump, I said, well, Donald Trump would have probably had us out by May. He would have had us out before the, the Taliban could have taken over the country. We, we wouldn't have left $80 billion no. worth of military equipment behind. We wouldn't have basically, and- they keep forgetting that Trump said we would be out by a certain time with certain conditions. Nobody ever wants to talk about that. 
there had to be certain conditions that were met. And I don't know those specific conditions, but it was like, if you do this, this, and this, then we will, we will leave by that deadline. If this is what's happening, then we will leave. He wasn't going to leave if the agreement wasn't followed through with. Right. And Biden was just like, let's go. Yeah. It, it, well, not only that, but I, I, you know, I think the first mistake he made was changing the date, the withdrawal date to September, you know, and that was purely ceremonial. That was purely just a for visual. And you don't make international decisions like that based upon visuals. You just don't do that. That's that's not good governance. You you if you're going to if you're dealing internationally in a military situation, you got to make the smart tactical move. Right. And And that was the thing about. Donald Trump's administration was, you know, say what you will about how he used his Twitter account. Okay, I get that, right? People hey, didn't I like loved that. his tweets. I knew what was going on. <laughs> I never had to guess what was going on. And I don't care about a mean tweet. But, but you know, let's let's talk about his international uh, efforts. What happened to ISIS? I mean, ISIS was on the news every night at the end of Pre- President Barack Obama's you know term. You know, it was ISIS this, ISIS that. Mm-hmm. Trump becomes president. ISIS starts up. Next thing you know, they're dropping the the mother of all bombs into one of their headquarters <laughs> caves. <laughs> Obliviate him. Then the Moa right. Then he sends in special forces and cleans them up. And all of a sudden, ISIS is no longer in the news. They're right. gone. Iran begins to flex, gonna try this present out. Next thing you know, their top general Soleimani is is he's dead, right? Um and what was Trump's response after he ordered the strike? He tweeted a picture of the American flag, right? <laughs> Which is, I think, trolling on the international scale at a level never seen before. Uh, it was hilarious. But 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 at the same time, he was also willing to step over that DMZ line and meet with the North Korean uh, mm-hmm. dictator to try to establish those relationships. And and so he peace made strength, peace through strength. That's that was did. that was it. And, and it worked with Putin. It, it worked, worked with Putin. You know, Putin took he took part of what was it, Georgia under Bush. He took the Crimea under Obama. He didn't do anything under Trump. And now with Biden, we have this Ukrainian invasion. And, and I think that, you know, leaders like Putin will watch and see what a power like the United States, what their leader is going to do. And, and they knew better. Mm-hmm. And so this is where we're at today. I, I firmly believe that this this if Trump had been reelected in 2020, that we would not have a war in Europe at this time. Right. Well, and I do believe he was reelected in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I believe that it was literally stolen, but I will say when you were talking about the polls and people showing up, um, I just voted in our primaries. We had primary (laughs) elections uh, last week. And I will tell you, I have been a primary voter. I vote in the primary and the general. I've been a primary and general voter for years. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have never seen so many people in at the polls and primary elections. I've never seen lines right. and primary elections. And this time there were lines. People were waiting two hours to vote in a primary. And, and that's what we need to do. We need to get people motivated. And there's a lot working against uh, conservative principles, you know, mm-hmm. especially social media. Social media, I'm going to be honest with you, it can be a great tool. But the executives, social media, well, that's a different story. And that's completely opposite. And and we've seen, you know, 
with what's going on in Europe. You know, we've seen social media change the the scope of of a war. Uh, people can see firsthand what's going on. They can see who the aggressor is. Uh, we also see though that with during the COVID issue you know if you said something to the degree that you know well i don't know about vaccines maybe they need to be tested a little bit more which i think that's a fair statement i, I won't take a position one way or the other on covid but but somebody says hey i think there should be more testing before i take a vaccine man you were mm-hmm. you were censored you were shut down and then just to find out six months later you know okay well you know we've discovered something through more uh you know studies and everything or what we see going on right now with Ukraine, right? It's like there's, there's like fake videos of this ghost fighter. You got this and, and it's, it's fun and games, but it's like all of a sudden all the fact checkers, checkers, they're silent, right? They're, they're, they're nowhere to be seen. And it was like, they don't care about good information being put out there. It just seems as a political tool to silence a right. group of people. And I disagree with that. If you if you try to make a social media platform where, hey, we need to stop the spread of misinformation, great. Let's stop the spread of all misinformation, not right. just that of one party. And, I, and that's where I have an issue with it. Right. They're, they're very much about if it goes against our um, rhetoric or our you know agenda, then we're going to fact check it or shut it down. And right. it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, in this, groups like, you know, t- uh, um, Americans for vaccine, um, for not vaccine, sorry, Americans for medical freedom, that group was shut down just because it was a group that wanted to pursue legislation and, and different things for medical freedom, for choice, which we're Americans. We should have a choice. Our military men and women have died for us to have that choice. That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, for a social media platform to take that away is insane. It's insane. It's like, you know, they, they always used to talk about, you know, China, you know, the, the, uh, CC, uh, what is the programming? Um, they have their programming that they, they, Oh yes. Okay. So we have the same thing here, right? Like we do, if you break down what it is, that's what we have. We're fed what they want us to know. And that, and that's so, that's so unfortunate. And, and listen, if your position is strong, if you, if you have a good logical position that can be backed by evidence, you don't need to suppress an opposing viewpoint. Right. I, that's, that's been my take. And, and I mean, my personal opinion is I think I'm smart enough to look at the body of evidence and just make a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and you talked about having a voice. And I think that, you know, one of the things that, you know, I heard growing up and I think it's kind of become a cliche, which is, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll die to defend your right to say it. And that I think is the American attitude. And, and it, it scares me that we're losing that attitude, you know, and this, this whole concept of, you know, I, I, I still try to have liberal friends on on social media in mm-hmm. real life because i don't I see believe, that i see that when i read your posts <laughs> yes I, I i i don't believe being put in an echo chamber and i i like having my views challenged and mm-hmm. and some of my closer friends gear more towards the libertarian side and i'm okay with that you know the more that it, it makes for good discussion it's it's challenging if i'm in an echo chamber i can never really you know how well do i know my position if i don't if i can't argue it if you can't defend it 
yeah, you have to be able to defend your position. And, and I'm not going to deny that there's been people who've changed my mind on a few things. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm okay with that. Uh, so I don't, you know, people ask me, what's your, what's your political views? I say, yeah, you know, generally conservative. I think I tend to lean more conservative, but I'm not a hundred percent. And, and there's some people that may say, well, I see why you think that, and, you know, others that, that, that don't, and that's okay. You know, and I think that's what makes America what it is, right? We, mm-hmm. we really are this melting pot of different ideas, different thoughts, different positions. What America is not and shouldn't ever be is a battlefield where we fight each other because they have a differing point of view when we want to silence somebody because they don't completely speak the same rhetoric that i speak and and that's what that's the danger that i've seen social media take in our nation and and we just left right center non-denominational everybody right we got it we got to all speak up and say hey enough is enough we, we let's give people a platform to speak their piece right let's let's allow that let's not censor people because we don't like their point of view and 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 i as much as and i want to bring this back around to universities as much as universities charge they they probably should get back into this idea of allowing you know ben shapiro talks a lot about you know UCLA and some of these other Berkeley, I guess, I'm, I'm sorry, Berkeley, mm-hmm. you know, where they shut down some of these free speech and when they're not somebody, into educating, they're into brainwashing. And if there's anything that challenges what they want people to think, they won't allow it to have a voice. Yeah. It, it, it bothers me when I turn on somebody like Russell Brandt or even Bill Maher, who, you know, four or five years ago, I couldn't stand to listen to him. And now they're talking about, you know, freedom of speech and this, the, the silliness of cancel culture. And I'm like, wow, I actually agree with what they're saying here. Right. You know, when some of these crazy. people, yeah, we're kind of finally meeting in the middle that say, Hey, you know, <laughs> you know, people being able to speak their mind is not a bad thing. You know? Well, it's like gone so crazy, so far, far left that even the left is like, wait a minute, what is yeah. happening? This is not good. So um, I want, I want to wrap it up now, but I want sure. to have you back on. Um, because I really want to talk to you when you said you're mostly conservative, I yes. want to talk to you about not tonight because okay. we're, we're going to have a follow-up episode. Um, cause I don't know that my listeners have an attention span for the amount of hours we could discuss this, <laughs> 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 but, but I do want to have you back on and I want to talk about, okay, let's talk about the conservative values that you do agree with. And then what are some of the ones that you disagree with? And we'll kind of like, chit chat about that. That sounds great. Well, thank um, you so much for having me on. This was so much fun. I appreciate this it. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on and giving me a, over an hour of your time today. And um, I'm just, I feel very blessed by it. I really appreciate everything. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Please leave a rating wherever you download podcasts and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a future episode of the Defending Freedom podcast. 